When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Audio Book Club on Anna Karenina. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club, which is also the Slate Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 5th, 2008. I'm June Thomas. To introduce today's discussion, here's Stephen Metcalf. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. Today we're going to talk about Anna Karenina, by some people's estimation, maybe the greatest novel ever written by Leo Tolstoy. Joining me today are Troy Patterson, Slate's television critic, and Katie Royfe, author of Uncommon Arrangements, which I'm told is out in paperback at this instant. Troy, this is a massive book. How we're ever going to get our, our heads around it in a half an hour or so is uh, kind of beats me. But, but why don't you start and give us some sense of what this book is about? I'm going to ease my way into talking about the fact that this book is about life and death, and also marriage and adultery and... Uh, spiritual longing, agriculture, tediously. The central figures, well, let's start with the heroine, Anna Karenina, who begins the book as the young and unhappily married wife of a St. Petersburg bureaucrat. She's taken out a glance with Count Vronsky, uh, a military man who had been attempting to woo Kitty, a tender young thing uh, whose um, parents, the prince and princess, are ready to marry her off. Before Kitty can be jilted by Vronsky, she herself has to refuse the proposal of Levin, the character in the book most like Tolstoy himself, sort of an ascetic figure, um, a quester after spiritual truth, uh, and someone who much prefers spending time in the country than to spending time in either Petersburg or Moscow. Complications ensue. <laughs> Katie, do you want to take it up from there, maybe? I mean, I think one thing that we're one, one thing we're grappling with is that the book is so huge as to comprehend kind of all of life in some overwhelming way. It's almost not like experiencing a work of art. It's not organized according to any specifically strict or noticeable aesthetic principle. It just overwhelms you. You live with it for weeks. And, and, uh, and this, this is my feeling about the book, which I can't hide. I think it's just a complete and total masterpiece. But Katie... Well, what, one thing I think uh, is really interesting is that when Tolstoy started out to write this book, he, um, as many people know, did see a woman throw herself under a train. Well, I think he read about it in a newspaper Oh, he read account. about it, yeah. yes. And then he started out to write the story in which she is this fallen woman and her husband is kind of a saint. And the characters, as he was writing, took on a life of their own. Mm -hmm. And the project that he initially started out evolved into the book that we, uh, yeah. the much this, more complicated book that we have. should be said that this happens with many novels. I mean, Moby Dick started out as sort of a sailor's tale and turned into a metaphysical rumination. And it, it, it happens. And why don't we start by, by just giving the listener some sense of the tone and the language of the book. Katie, why don't you read from the beginning? Okay, this is, of course, one of the most famous opening lines of all time. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. 
all was confusion in the, the Oblonsky's house. The wife had found out that the husband was having an affair with their former French governess and had announced to the husband that she could not live in the same house with him. This situation had continued for three days now and was painfully felt by the couple themselves, as well as by all the members of the family and household. They felt that there was no sense in their living together and that people who meet accidentally at any inn have more connection with each other than they, the members of the family and the household of the Oblonskys. The wife would not leave her rooms. The husband was away for the third day. The children were running all over the house as if lost. The English governess quarreled with the housekeeper and wrote a note to a friend asking her to find her a new place. The cook had already left the premises the day before at dinner time. The kitchen maid and coachman had given notice. On the third day after the quarrel, Prince Stepan Arkadyevich Oblonsky, Steva as he was called in society, woke up at his usual hour, that is, at 8 o'clock in the morning, not in his wife's bedroom, but in his study on a Morocco sofa. He rolled his full, well-tended body over on the springs of the sofa as if wishing to fall asleep again for a long time, tightly hugged the pillow from the other side and pressed his cheek to it. But suddenly he gave a start, sat up on the sofa and opened his eyes. Katie, that's wonderful. What do you hear in that passage? What's so great about it, um, and I think this is what's distinctive about Tolstoy, is the busyness, the, the entire world conjured in a few lines, that there's total motion in the chaos of this family. And the idea that he just starts right in and takes this incredibly complicated moment, which is a husband having an affair, and somehow sets it in motion on the page in such a vivid way that when you get finished with that second paragraph and then Steva, who's this great, sensual, lovely, pleasure-seeking character who just makes you smile, and he just wakes up, you know, his sort of plump self, and he can't help but be good-natured and happy, even though this kind of calamity is occurring in his household because he's had an affair with the governess. And it's just, it's a great opening because it both marks the incredible simplicity of Tolstoy's natural descriptions of people and places, as well as the incredible emotional complexity that he's going to get into in every page of this book. Yeah, and there's something to be said also for the simplicity and declarativeness of the style, this kind of window pane into reality, um, and the just total clarity of it, and yet it's also suffused with an immense amount of energy and verbal energy. We should say that this most famous study of infidelity has a secondary infidelity near the heart of it, but not quite at the heart of it, which is the Oblonsky story. And there is a way in which, Katie, you were sort of touching on this, that he gets, he kind of gets away with behavior that becomes criminal for others in the book, simply because he's so simple and exuberant, and people accept him on his terms. There's an enormous amount of force of personality at the center of this book, the sense that people are inexorably themselves and encounter each other as themselves, and by sheer force of presence are sort of allowed to be themselves. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because there's, the, in the two adulteries, the one that occurs in the Yablonsky's household and the one later in the Karenina household, um, one is comic in a way and one is tragic. Yeah, and that it's... this first adultery is a sort of obstacle and it's a sort of, um, you know, as you can see the way he sets it up, it's sort of like a something that needs to be overcome in the running of the household. Whereas the second adultery is this intense, violent, explosive destructive and enormously emotional 
thing. Mm-hmm. And so he really does these two portraits which encompass all of life. Now, Katie, I take it this isn't the first time you've read this. This is the fourth time I've read it. This is the second time I've read it, and I take it this is the first and a half time that uh, Troy's read it. Troy, what do you hear in this passage? Well, the other striking thing about it for me is the way that Tolstoy begins to set up his sense of time in the novel. Uh, We're beginning at 8 a.m. on a Friday. I think I can maybe tell you, Vladimir Nabokov has done this work for us of actually figuring out the timeline for the book. He has a much better sense of it than Tolstoy does, actually. The action of the novel starts at 8 a.m. Friday, February the 11th, on the old Russian calendar, 1872. And so we understand that the situation of confusion has been going on for three days. Oblonsky wakes up with a start uh, right at 8. And these are little clues uh, to keep us tuned in to how... Tolstoy marks the passage of time and stretches it. Um, and there's an argument to be made that what makes him great, as, and uh, it's a quality that's as important as his eye for detail or the power of his imagination in projecting himself into other people's souls, is his sense of time, that the way he relays the story catches the human pulse in a way. Well, I think one of the things related to that that I find really interesting is something that he's captured about relations. And again, I haven't seen this, I haven't read this book since my early 20s, probably. And so with all the life experience that I've now have, I read it differently. One of the things I was struck by, and I think this is in a funny way related to the sense of time and the pacing that you're talking about, is something in the way that he talks about character and the way character works in relationships, namely that, and you see this especially in Anna's relationship with her husband, Karenin, that one person is... 16 different things Mm -hmm. really rapidly. So she thinks he's a saint. She loves him. She hates him. He's cartoonish. She's, you know, he's this kind of horrible figure. And then all of a sudden he's this poignant figure and she feels sorry for him. And I think that what he captures is that in these situations of crisis in a marriage or in a relationship, a character really isn't fixed and it isn't one thing. And it does undergo, you know, how you perceive somebody else undergoes these kind of intense, rapid changes. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about, and I think this is related to what Troy is saying, because that is how people really experience each other. Mm -hmm. Somebody isn't a character that you build and they are one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and And in a certain way, the incoherence of how each of these characters is viewing the other one is, to me, perfectly realistic and true to life. Right. And beyond that, I would say that the way he kind of tailors each character's monologue that, and uh, kind of records that what's an early stream of consciousness technique is telling. For instance, Vronsky, the cad who's going to at least temporarily break Kitty's heart and eventually lead to Anna's fall, his moments of self-scrutiny are kind of like appro- uh, are appropriately shallow and you feel the sort of the circularity of his reasoning and the ways in which he deceives himself, but also his moments of kind of decency and attempt to reason. Uh, you'd contrast that with with Levin or Levin, or I'm not even going to pretend that my Russian pronunciation is any good. In any sense, the ascetic fellow who um, is first spurned by Kitty, uh, he's always on this quest for the truth that leads him more in a straight line. And that straight line cuts through some places that maybe aren't useful for his philosophy of life. But you, there's a sense of 
progress in yeah. the way it pads forward. And also Tol- Tolstoy is masterful. Levin, we should say, is is just central to the book. He's almost as large a character or looms as largely in the book as, as Anna does. I think they're really the two people at the heart of the book. And as you said, Troy, Levin is really a stand-in for Tolstoy. He's as close to Tolstoy as anyone in the novel comes to being. And he's, Tolstoy does a wonderful job giving us the inner life of Levin and showing us how he's in constant when he's in the city. And he only restores himself to a sense of like moral probity and self-possession when he goes back into the country. And so Tolstoy is just so in control that he's able to give you someone who has a set of qualities when they're thrown into a milieu that makes them uncomfortable or awkward or not somehow themselves. Uh, he's so confident of having Levin exactly right that he can have Levin kind of go to pieces emotionally when he's forced into social situations that he finds uncomfortable and then bring him back together when he's out in the country and you never for one second don't feel as though this is the same person. It's utterly of a piece. It's a million pieces, but they all come together as a single coherent character. So let's do a little bit of intellectual brush clearing here before we go any further. We're currently reading the most recent translation into English of Anna Karenina, which is translated by Richard Pevere and Larissa Volokonsky. It replaces or may go some way to replacing as the standard English edition the translation by a woman named Constance Garnett. Is that right? And many people who were familiar for the last hundred years with Russian literature in English were familiar with the work of Ms. Garnett. And there's some controversy as to whether or not she was true to the original. I mean, I think everyone admits that her Anna Karenina, her War and Peace, are sort of masterpieces in their own right, the way many translations can be. But they took enormous liberties in order to make them more palatable for American audiences. And there's some sense in which she sort of swilled the sherry and sat down and made, she was an editor, really, as much as she was a translator. And to encounter these books a second time now in these new translations, which are much more, they observe much more fidelity, supposedly, to the original vision of Tolstoy and the original language of Tolstoy. So there's what's argued to be a purposeful declarative flatness to a lot of it, to a lot of Tolstoy's language. He purposely, in passages, uses no noticeable literary flourish at all. I was curious, Katie, as someone who's come back to the book now for the fourth time, this is your first time with this translation, did you think it was a different book? Did the character strike you any differently? Did the style of it seem less inviting? As I say, my last reading was quite some time ago. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Fake it. The character seemed different to me, but I don't think that's because of the translation. Kitty seemed much more insipid to me. But I, as again, I think that's life experience of my own, not the translation itself. In terms of the language, I actually liked this translation. And I felt that there was something cleaner and clearer about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there was something beautiful in this. As you say, there's a sort of flatness that I think is kind of beautiful. Yeah. And it sort of it, it fits in with what I've always understood to be the sort of truth about Tolstoy, which is that there's an absence of literary pretense, which gives you at least the illusion of this direct access to the inner lives of these characters. And any additional literary flourish or softening would somehow take away from that. There is something cruder about it, but maybe truer to Tolstoy. Troy, what was your experience my experience of the prose was uh, I I didn't feel uh, molested or misled at any point, um, <laughs> and we're uh, looking at a tapestry from the back, right? So it's yeah, it's 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 fine. I, I was going to disagree though with the point that um, you were just making about Tolstoy's willed lack of um, artifice. I think that the reason we may have that impression of him is that when he's writing really well, he 
achieves this uh, Flaubert's goal of sort of being invisible and omnipresent at once, right? Such as the might of the sentences and the way that the imagery carries forward. So when he's writing well, he feels invisible. And when he's writing badly, he's clunky in a way that leads us to assume that he's um, simply being sort of direct and kind of with the a directness that kind of also rhymes with his uh, sort of Christian piety, when in fact, I just don't think he's very good at transitions. And I didn't read it that way. I think that there's a, a, a kind of purposeful bluntness to some of the things that he says, and he's getting so directly at a human truth that that flourish seems unnecessary and he's and he's and he's telling you complete he's not afraid what he i think what he's part of what he does is he's not afraid to tell instead of show because when he tells he tells so beautifully and so directly and and as soon as you've heard it you know that you knew it all along but it took him saying it for you to experience that and when he writes about nature he then becomes a much more lyrical and lush and full writer so he's capable of both modes but i didn't pick up laziness in one and acuity in the other i agree other. with you and i also i mean i totally agree with you and i think one of the reasons why he can have these passages where he just tells you what happens in a way that's kind of unusual for this era um, where yeah. he sort of analyzes psychology, you know, or anything, is because his characters are so alive and so natural. And he's so good at the way somebody looks or the way somebody smiles and these psychological details that his characters are so flesh and blood and they are so uh, vivid that he can have these moments where he goes inside someone's head in a way that is sort of direct and straightforward and doesn't feel at all unnatural. Yeah, he can sort of give you the lasagna recipe and tell you each layer, you know, mm-hmm. cheese, pasta, mm-hmm. you know, roasted vegetables, and it still tastes delicious for just a stupid metaphor. My, my sense is that Troy doesn't bring the same incredibly no, 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 know, I, I, o- no. overawed and slavish love to this book that I do, and so I, I'm going to rip him a new one in a minute, but let's read quickly read another passage. Levin, as we said, is at the heart of the book. Levin constantly rhapsodizes about the possibility of becoming almost peasant-like in his experience of nature via agriculture. He's a large landowner. He's actually quite wealthy, but he actually he does actually work and manage his farm in a very you know intimate way, hands-on way. And one of the more famous and renowned passages from the book is Levin returning to his estate and sithing the fields along with his peasants. And uh, that's what I'll read. It's on page 250 of this edition. He's working with one of his his workers, a man named Titus. His satisfaction was poisoned only by the fact that his swath did not look good. I'll swing less with my arm, more with my whole body, he thought, comparing Titus's swath straight as an arrow with his own rambling and unevenly laid swath. Titus had taken the first swath very quickly, as Levin had noticed, probably wanting to test his master, and the swath happened to be a long one. The following swaths were easier, but even so, Levin had to strain all his strength not to lag, beh- lag behind the, and I'll just say, musics. These are, as I understand it, emancipated serfs. Yeah. He thought of nothing, desired nothing, except not to lag behind and to do the best job he could. He heard only the clang of Siths, and ahead he saw Titus's erect figure moving on, the curved semicircle of the mowed space, grass and flower heads bending down slowly and wavily about the blade of his Sith, and ahead of him, the end of the swath, where rest would come. 
not understanding what it was or where it came from, in the midst of his work he suddenly felt a pleasant sensation of coolness on his hot, sweaty shoulders. He glanced at the sky while his blade was being wetted. A low, heavy cloud had come over it, and big drops of rain were falling. Some musics went for their caftans and put them on. Others, just like Levin, merely shrugged their shoulders joyfully under the pleasant freshness. Troy, this is where I'll start to take issue with you, and you can correct me if I'm completely wrong. You said tediously about agriculture, but I feel like that's saying tediously about the inside parts of a whale. Well, well, when you read Moby Dick, it's not tedious at all. This is some of the most wonderful, well, sensuous writing. You know. Well, no, first of all, let's, let's take a moment to distinguish between Tolstoy's nature scenes, which are exalted and wonderful, and the many, many pages in this book that are about agronomy and provincial <laughs> politics. I wanted and, more. And... This is a triumphant realistic novel, and I'm very glad to know things about uh, Russia in the 1860s through it. Uh, more importantly, I, it's a triumphantly realistic novel in the, capturing its age. But there are parts of its age that need not be captured. And that's what I was trying to get at before, talking about Tolstoy is a great artist, but he still has his weak points. One of those is that his pursuit of the truth, capital T truth, leads to moments of like truth and beauty, but it also leads to a tendency to sermonize in places and some quite dull stretches about bureaucracy. But you see and quite like and some sophomoric ideas about as Levin thinks through his uh, belief in God, for instance, and as Tolstoy does that magnificent job of carrying us through his head, well, he's gotta work through a lot of ideas that some of us were done with by like the end of Frosh Week. Yeah, but thanks to Tolstoy. No, um, I, I think that you've <laughs> um, so yeah, you've misread you've, you've misread the book because if you had captured the full essence of it, you would know that there's no there's no excising the vice without also taking away the virtue of a human being. And so it is with a work of art. It needs to be long winded and tedious, and it needs to sort of overwhelm you with long stretches of banality. And when... those are the parts that I need to skim. Yeah. Yeah, but but I mean. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. Katie, should this book have been one word shorter? I, I don't know. I guess I'm like a little bit on Troy's side here, although I do see the purpose in creating character and that in a way you do need to have feel what is irritating and self-righteous about this character. You have to have it demonstrated for you yeah. in the way that it right. is. But I also, to add one thing, the actual side of his character that I found a little tedious this time, which is kind of surprising is the love story with Kitty, mm. which is, again, at the center of the book. And, and you know, there are these two adulteries, as I say, one tragic and one comic, both of which are sort of love gone awry in certain ways. And they're supposed to be this kind of wholesome story of Le of Levin wooing Kitty. They have an obstacle, which is that she has a temporary infatuation on Vronsky, who doesn't really, you know, sort of just toying with her. But then he has a family and he meets this woman and it's the kind of extreme bliss of married love. Mm -hmm. And I find there's something in that particular love story that is as boring as Troy seems to find these passages about bureaucracy and all of that. To me, that love story was so blank this time and uninteresting fundamentally. And I just couldn't Do you, do you mean that you so didn't believe about, in it or that? Well, I don't believe Kitty seemed to me such – I don't really believe in Kitty as this character of just like girlish virtue, this sort of – in her blandness, I, I didn't really believe that much in her. And I also didn't – I just didn't fundamentally care about that love story. 
Yeah. Uh, the way you didn't care about some of these other passages. It's sort of, right. to me, I was m- sort of waiting for the Anna parts, which were much more vivid to me, well, or the Oblonsky also... parts, or the all the other parts. Yeah, and there's something that we should say especially dated in a woman collapsing into a state of more or less chronic neurotic fatigue after her dashing lover absconds with another woman. There's just something... It just well, actually, that your part of her I liked better than when traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> <laughs> that part they I liked better when she goes to the when the she baths, becomes all religious and she goes back. Yeah, that part I liked. Yeah. What I didn't really like is the sort of long. I mean, I suppose it's all happy families are alike. It's it's just a little mm-hmm. the happy family. I mean, in a way, he explains that his effort to show a happy family is doomed from the beginning, right? Yes. In that very first sentence, he's yeah. saying, and the happy family I'm going to show you is going to be boring on, as hell. On top of which, he tells you another interesting thing, just to really yeah. interject quickly, is he, is he tells you that Levin's mother died when Levin was very young. And in fact, this has completely informed his relationships with women. He needs to idealize them. And and actually, that's quite well done in a way, because Kitty's sort of somewhat worth idealizing in some way, but maybe she's a little bit of a blank scrim upon which to project this goodness. And there's something sort of psycho- psychologically complex happening in their relationship, even though she may be somewhat insipid. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought so the first few times I read the book. I would have agreed with you. But just something about this time, I was thinking, how much more riveting Anna is. And well, I guess the moment, there's a moment where Levin comes to see yes, Anna, yeah. which is such a great moment. Which I had forgotten about completely. Um, I, I, I had no forgotten that too. And he goes to see Anna. And, and um, this, we should say this is towards the end of the book. Towards the end of the book. Yeah. And it's a slight act of disloyalty toward his perfect and virtuous wife, Kitty, because Anna is part of this. Vronsky had scorned Kitty, obviously. And um, so Anna, in a way, betrayed Kitty's friendship by going off with him. And Anna just sort of maliciously decides to get Levin under her spell and to have him just for this one night, he's a little tipsy, he's had some drinks, to just kind of lure him him, and to bewitch him. And she does. And she does. And that's what's so amazing. And actually that, even that single scene sort of redeems what I'm saying is the kind of insipidness of the Kitty Levin plot line because he does see that Anna with all her kind of selfishness and you know, sensuality and sort of vanity and narcissism is so much more um, attractive <laughs> yes. and mesmerizing yeah. than Aunt, than Kitty. And also, he gets he gets Tolstoy constantly gets at how relationships have these these arcs, especially relationships grounded in desire. I mean, that's sort of at the heart of the entire book is Vronsky's inability ultimately to sustain his love for Anna, which is what makes her ultimately tragic, right? I mean, and her sense that that her ability to capture and bewitch him finally at the end of this book has sort of run its course. But really, I was this know- book should be like a wedding present it's for everybody. Oh my God. <laughs> because if you mean because it's a cautionary tale? Yes, because it says, you know, you, you might think that that handsome military man in the corner is is who you want to run off with, but in fact, once you went off with him, he'll lose interest and well, you know, no, no, life but the will thing become, is, the- you know, as tormented as it was with your husband. Well, yes, but that's the sin that Anna committed before hooking up with Vronsky was marrying her husband in the first place. Who she didn't really love. Right. Although Steve said earlier that she was unhappy with her husband, and that's not clear from the book. Mm. I think it's perfectly. One of you did. Oh, Troy said, because I don't think she was was unhappy. I don't think she was necessarily unhappy. She didn't love him, and she was fine. She had her son, who she was very attached to. I mean, people live in various levels of attachment and disattachment to their husbands. What made her feel unhappy was the sudden experience of love. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen, obviously, one sees this in life, that 
the unhappiness is revealed to you later on right. by the sudden vividness of this mm-hmm. other right, person. Right. And that you can grow very accustomed to a sort of pleasant kind of sort of distant type of relationship that she obviously had with her husband. I don't think it's clear that it was bad and, and or think, that she was unhappy with him. I think, I think it is. I think that well, if you're unhappy, you're still unhappy even if you don't think that you're unhappy. And there, there are other examples in the book of, for instance, Vronsky, after he and Anna uh, sort of run off together there in Italy, he has these delusions about becoming a painter. And again, with the interior monologues, Tolstoy is masterly at sort of like depicting the the rhythm and shape of these self delusions. But I think that that it's a uh, it's a like circumstance that that Vronsky is imagining his his future for himself as an artist is at that moment he is as unhappy and as deluded as Anna is when the when the book begins. That that's what makes her an interesting character, isn't it? That sort of like her darkness and her glamour. Anna's a more interesting character than Kitty because Anna's a more interesting person than Kitty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I was just going to say that my experience rereading the book now was sort of doubly surprising. If I had been asked to recall the book cold before I picked up this edition, I would have said it's the story of a of a remarkable, sensuous, turbulent, intelligent woman trapped inside an unfulfilling marriage who meets a man who's capable of responding fully to her beauty, but is himself too shallow in the end to assume the full moral and aesthetic responsibility of being her lover in the long run. And as that relationship plays itself out, she realizes that she's stranded in society. It has no place for her. And she kills herself. That's how I would have vaguely remembered it. Actually, it's interesting. I read it about 15, 16 years ago. It was and remains my favorite novel of all time. I had no vivid memory of the book other than what I just said, aside from, I should say, Levin Sifting in the Fields, which really stayed with me. Rereading it this time, I was surprised at how more sympathetic the book is to Vronsky and Anna's first husband, weirdly. I mean, the person who you most remember, I think, is the villain of the book, having not read it for years. Actually, in a bizarre way, there's there's a scene in which she almost dies about half to two-thirds of the way through the book. And it's sort of a false ending for the book. And it's a moment at which she asks for forgiveness from her ex-husband. And, and Christian charity bursts through this man's inner and elaborate architecture of self-repression and morality and expresses itself spontaneously, which which I take from this novel as simply the greatest thing that can happen to a human being is to be overwhelmed from something within and become fully a Christian. And he does. He forgives his wife and he forgives Vronsky. I mean, you're sitting there. You can't sit in a chair and read this, I found. Like this moment where he finally brings together Vronsky and I, I don't remember his name, Alexei, her ex-husband. And, and Alexei is capable of forgiving Vronsky. This, and, and the degree to which Tolstoy depicts this as a crime, and you feel it as a crime. I, I was just surprised by this book all over again. I was, I was shocked at how much I didn't automatically sympathize with Anna's uh, pursuit of her own desires against social convention. And in fact, there's quite a... I I didn't feel that okay. Do you look at me like I'm insane? I just I'm not looking at you like you're insane. But we have had this conversation in several book clubs, like from Philip Roth, Richard Ford onward, where we always come to the moment of like Steve's like lack of understanding for all these adulterous couples running around. We always get to that point in our book clubs. However, however, 
I agree with you that it's that that book was not about what you said in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think, but and I think Karenin so also I'm was a touching. Wrong. No, I think Karenin was also a touching character. When I read it this time, I was much more sympathetic to him, the husband. But but he's being genuinely humiliated. No, I agree. I mean, he's being genuinely humiliated. And you're meant to feel that humiliation. You you're not meant to think of him no, as a stock character. Not. Of the, and he of isn't the, a stock yeah, character. No, not at all. And I think you're right. And I I agree that there's something painful. And in her cruelty to him. You can mm-hmm. feel her sometimes yes. being deliberately cruel to him and she hates him and she's struggling to turn him into a cartoon because she does actually have some love for yeah, him. I know, it's exactly and right. I, it's the moment where you're leaving somebody and your mind suddenly transforms them into a caricature of themselves, which is and a they necessity. And often they often live down to that caricature. Yeah, but sure. but, it is, but you've put it so beautifully. It's her need to sort of morally expiate herself that forces onto him all these different these limitations that he often expresses but not always expresses and it's Tolstoy who can see that he transcends them but not Anna and there's a way in which I was just surprised at the direction of my sympathies but I I also think in terms of the adulterous love and this great love between Anna and Vronsky it's not that you know in a way it's that part of this book is about the banality of great love Mm -hmm. and part of this book is that it's not about Vronsky being too limited or shallow to really be like the man this woman needs. It's actually about the fact that no love yes. can be what you live on. Yeah. And it's about the limitations, our ideas. And we, and I think we, especially in our culture now, have do believe in this sort of transcendent power of a certain kind of romantic love that I think what he's exposing here is that it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's never enough. Yeah. And it's not going to last. And it's not about either Vronsky or Anna having any particular character flaw, but rather that this sort of passion is what it is. And when you take it out and you make them live together yeah. in a, you know this country house, and it's and he does do that scene beautifully Incredible. where Dolly goes to oh, visit. Oh, it's amazing! Yeah, and the country house is like perfect. Yeah, because it's it's right out of an Architectural Digest issue from 1989. I mean, there's just absolutely this vision of somehow luxury will allow us to transcend everything: our Russianness, our our sort of ethnically specific, culturally specific, limited times. We'll just be part of the pan-European super rich, and they're all speaking French, and everything mm-hmm. is brand new and beautiful and luxurious and it doesn't work they have each other uh, you know i mean this is the amazing anomaly of this it's a 19th century novel in which the two illicit lovers actually get each other and appear to be able to just go ahead and, and live together and that fails i mean it's a it's a remarkable vision troy you look very skeptical no i'm only mildly skeptical i just qualify all that by saying um, i think what we're talking about here what would what, what vronsky and anna have and what is not enough to sustain them is strictly physical love, what uh, Levin and Kitty have, and which is works out at least slightly better, is uh, sort of like a metaphysical love, despite Kitty's relative uh, simplicity, and she's a little lamb of a girl. Kitty and Levin have a meeting of the minds and souls when it comes to sort of matters of Christian giving and forgiving, and that sustains them a little better. You know, they still oh, have you to have deal that with... moment where he thinks, "Oh, I'm much smarter than her." You Which he is. She deals with death, right? But he say, he not, there's a part where his brother dies, and yeah, she sort of rises that, to the yeah. occasion right, and right, manages right. the sick room. And he says, "Isn't it interesting?" And Levin actually thinks he's like, "She's so much stupider than me," and yet here <laughs> right. she is behaving so well in the situation. And I don't really call that a meeting of the minds. I would, <laughs> well, have, no, I would no, 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 no. But no, he recognizes in that moment that there are things that 
Kitty in particular, and that women in general, and that people know, and that people who are less um, sort of neurotic and inward than he know about life and dealing with the sick and dying, and thus about charity, which is in the sort of theological scheme of the book, it ranks extremely high. But here's what I, I would just suggest to you. I, I mean, maybe you're right, and that is what Tolstoy's doing with that incredibly boring love story. However, I think in a way this is like Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost. If one of your characters becomes so much more charismatic, obviously Anna, who we're agreeing, is so much more charismatic than Kitty, who is sort of dead on the page a little bit. What that means is that that sort of undermines the simplicity of the theme you're talking about, I think. It it no longer becomes, oh, here's this great transcendent love and here's this fallen physical love that actually isn't. I don't, I don't know. I think it's I don't more follow. complicated. You're saying that. that. Because Anna is so much more charismatic than Kitty and because I just think the investment and passion he puts into describing Anna and Vronsky's relationship – and the way he does it sort of undermines the idea that it's just an argument for this kind of metaphysical love that lasts. Well, I, I would point love. out first that Anna does end up under a train. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that Tolstoy uh, invests like power in his description, for instance, of the wedding of um, Kitty and Levin and the sort of the tale of their their honeymoon and settling in. The, uh, the wedding itself, I, I think, is it's a kind of a blindingly beautiful scene that catches – uh, sort of um, the the consciousness of the bridegroom-elect with some acuity. Well, one thing I'm noticing about our discussion, I wonder whether you notice it as well, is that it's much easier to talk about everyone except Anna Karenina, that, that it's hardest in a way to capture her vitality and her magnetism and the grip that she has on the male characters of the book, including Levin, I mean, that's a real index of it, that she's able to bewitch the sort of utterly rectitudinous, you know, Levin towards the end of the book. So why don't we uh, sort of set up a final discussion about the book uh, as as, Anna, as Anna's book? I keep saying Anna or Anna, whatever. I change, seem to change my mind every 30 seconds. <laughs> but uh, Anna, by reading the other sort of iconic passage from the book, Troy, why don't you read um, her suicide? Yeah, we're here at the end of the book. Anna and Vronsky's first meeting came on a train, and um, that is where, in uh, a scene full of iron blood and despair, Anna offs herself, motivated somewhat by self-pity, but also, I think, by a desire for revenge. Suddenly, remembering the man who was run over the day she first met Vronsky, she realized what she must do. With a quick light step, she went down the stairs that led from the water pump to the rails and stopped close to the passing train. She looked at the bottoms of the carriages, at the bolts and chains and big cast-iron wheels of the first carriage slowly rolling by, and tried to estimate by eye the midpoint between the front and back wheels and the moment when the middle would be in front of her. There, she said to herself, staring into the shadow of the carriage at the sand mixed with coal poured between the sleepers, there, right in the middle, and I'll punish him and be rid of everybody and of myself. She wanted to fall under the first carriage, the midpoint of which had drawn even with her. But the red bag, which she started taking off her arm, delayed her, and it was too late. The midpoint went by. She had to wait for the next carriage. A feeling seized her, similar to what she experienced when preparing to go into the water for a swim, and she crossed herself. 
The habitual gesture of making the sign of the cross called up in her soul a whole series of memories from childhood and girlhood, and suddenly the darkness that covered everything for her broke and life rose up before her momentarily with all its bright past joys. Yet she did not take her eyes from the wheels of the approaching second carriage. And just at the moment when the midpoint between the two wheels came even with her, she threw the red bag aside and, drawing her head down between her shoulders, fell on her hands under the carriage, and, with a light movement, as if preparing to get up again at once, sank to her knees. And in that same instant, she was horrified at what she was doing. Where am I? What am I doing? Why? She wanted to rise, to throw herself back, but something huge and implacable pushed at her head and dragged over her. Lord, forgive me for everything, she said, feeling the impossibility of any struggle. A little music muttering to himself, was working over some iron, and the candle by the light of which she had been reading that book, filled with anxieties, deceptions, grief, and evil, flared up brighter than ever, lit up for her all that had once been in darkness, sputtered, grew dim, and went out forever. That's page 768. Katie, what do you you even say? (laughs) I mean, Anna's a very ambiguous figure. Um, which I guess I noticed this time. I've been talking about her charisma. But you also see, I see in her relationship with her son, um, whom she almost lets go. Mm. Um, she sort of loses interest in him and, and kind of forgets about him when she needs to. And then you reunites in that incredible scene where she sort of sneaks into the home of her husband. But she's not a great mother, I think we could say confidently about Anna Karenina. <laughs> she's sort of in, indifferent and then kind of, theatrically passionate about her children in a way that seems somewhat sort of narcissistic, mm-hmm. I would say. But still, I love her. I still think that when she that scene at the end also captures in its ambiguity something kind of amazing, that it isn't just a suicide where she decides to do something and does it. There's the resistance, and there is what you talked about, her incredible vitality that just can't... There's something about her that is so alive, it's almost impossible to witness it extinguish itself. And I think it's really kind of uh, stunning, that passage. I myself am entirely stunned, not least because this is book, despite being 800 pages long, is highly ripe for rereading, just so you can appreciate the way that the the buildup, the 767 pages before this, and the sort of the elements, including Anna's handbag and the meaning of the little peasant muttering to himself and, uh, you know, stepping towards this train as she'll step through a ball with her quick light steps. It's really wonderful. The other thing that comes to mind, you mentioned her ambiguity as a character. I'm searching in vain right now for a scene in the middle of the book when uh, Anna and Vronsky are in Italy and she has her portrait painted. It's kind of the, it's the portrait in the portrait. This book is a portrait of her. The Mm -hmm. painting is the representative of the book. And Tolstoy writes about the painter having given Anna in the portrait an ambiguous smile, sort of, and he phrases it in a way that I could not but recall the Mona Lisa and his sort of that secret, ambiguous, tempting smile, which goes towards, she's wonderful because Anna is a complete mystery, and she is one because she's so thoroughly revealed to us, if that paradox uh, makes any sense. Well, and I think what what, what you're getting at, is, again, I keep be, being obsessed with this one subject, but it's the changeability, that she is so many different things at once. Mm-hmm. She's incredibly selfish, and yet there's sort of a sweetness to her, and a, she's incredibly 
vain and she's very concerned with appearances and with the power she has over other people. Right. On the other hand, there are moments where she's kind of giving or graceful or funny. And I think that it's it's that she can be all these different things simultaneously that is that Mona Lisa effect that you're right. talking about. you know, mm-hmm. And that the mystery is really, and this is why I think, I mean, I sort of agree with Steve. This is one of my favorite books of all time. Because she's such a complicated character, like someone you know. Mm-hmm. She's so complicated that she's more complicated than anyone in a book. And yeah. it's very, it's nearly impossible to do that on the page because there's nothing fixed about her. And the impossibility of describing her is what's so interesting. And now that you bring up that scene where the painter comes and paints her every day, and he's so cranky, and he's so, like, wretched, and he comes into the house and everyone hates him <laughs> because he's, like, this impossible presence. He's a typical artist. Yeah, a typical Brandon artist. But you can feel the effort and the sort of orneriness of the whole project, yeah. which is to put this woman who it's impossible to capture on the page, mm. um, and I and I do think that that you you know you're t- you're right, Troy. That that's that in a way is like the center of what's so fascinating about this book because you can't say what she is, even though you have so much information. Right. You've been inside her head, right? Um, and and you're right that it's the per- it's the perpetuating of that mystery that's so interesting about this writing, right? Thank you so much for joining us. This was Slate's Audio Book Club, the Anna Karenina edition. <laughs> we'll be meeting 12 more times to do the book justice. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Troy. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm sorry if I, uh, I haven't uh, offended you with this with this heresy against Count Tolstoy. It's good to offend Steve. This is, this is a, a perfect bit. novel, but that just means it, it only has a few dozen imperfections. I'm easily scandalized on this very issue. (laughs) For Slate.com, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any feedback on the Audiobook Club, send an email to podcasts at Slate.com. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.